for listening to our podcast, recorded live at Gateway Church Ashford. You can find out more about us on our website, gatewaychurchashford.co.uk. Forever. If you've got your Bible and you like to turn to the book of Acts, and we're about to begin a new series uh, uh, based in the book of Acts, Again, exploring what God is saying to us as a church with regard to uh, the Holy Spirit. We've been looking at the gifts of the Spirit. We're looking, particularly in Acts, at what it means to be a community filled with and led by the Holy Spirit. And all that that involves. So, if you've got uh, your Bible there, Acts chapter 1. And we're just going to read the first few verses and then over chapter 2 and a few verses there. In my first book... Uh, I told you, Theophilus, about everything that Jesus began to do and to teach until the time that he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after his crucifixion, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. And once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift that he has promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? And he replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they're not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. And they strained to see him rising into heaven, and two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way that you saw him go. And then over in chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were uh, meeting together in one place, and suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And every one present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them uh, this ability. And at that time there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. And when they heard the loud noise and everyone came running and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. Well, there's an awful lot that's going on there. And we'll pick up on that in just a moment. Um, But we live in a changing world. You don't have to look far to see how much change has taken place. I mean, if you take the phone out of your pocket or out of your handbag and have a look at that and and think what a phone used to look like years ago. I can remember growing up at home and remember those, those phone boxes down the corner 
where you used to go in the, that red booth uh, and open the door and put your money in and press button A, was it, and button B. Anybody remember that? Yeah. I don't want to give away how old you are, but that's the fact of the matter. Um, things change, don't they? You've only got to look at our cars and to see how much they have changed. Uh, you no longer need to read, read a map anymore. You just set the coordinates in there and away you go and you trust the GPS to get you where you want to go. Change is part and parcel of life in this world. And uh, if we don't realize that and we don't adapt to it, we are in trouble. There are some people who would uh, like to just hole up somewhere and live like people used to, whatever is in their mind about the glory years. You know, there are people around Ashford who say, oh, you know, I wish Ashford was old Ashford. Well, it's not old Ashford, it's new Ashford. And, uh, you know, time moves on. The same applies to the church as well. The church is not a, was never meant to be a static institution. It was meant to be a, a community that was throbbing with the presence of God, with the life of God, and, and adaptable to all that God was wanting to do in, in and through it on planet Earth. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, I don't know whether you like change, whether you like it so long as it comes slowly, or whether you can uh, one of those people who can adapt, adapt to it quite rapidly. I know in my own experience, when I look at my own Christian life and think of the particular visions that I thought God had given them to me in my younger days and how they might map out, and then to, to walk that journey and discover that actually it's not quite how I imagined it to be. It's not that the vision is not fulfilled, but sometimes we have our particular parameters set on what we believe God has said to us, both as individuals and also as church communities. And then we find ourselves trying to shoehorn ourselves into that kind of vision. Uh, but God, is, 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 God moves in mysterious ways, doesn't he? And uh, if there's something I know, he does move in mysterious ways, but it's always because he wants to perform wonders, and he won't do it according to our agendas. And I, I love the book of Acts because it's a fascinating story. There's so much that is in here. It's written by Luke, a God-fearing Greek, uh, and uh, referred to as the beloved doctor in Colossians 4, verse 11. It was dated around uh, AD 62. It's historical. Uh, Luke was uh, an historian of the highest rank. He was incredibly accurate. At one time, they, they doubted uh, some of what uh, Luke had written, both in his gospel and in the book of Acts. But as time has gone by and uh, more and more has been unearthed in different ways, Luke has been proved to be an historian of the highest rank, a man of, of great detail. And uh, we, we see him writing here to a man called Theophilus. No real indication of who he was. He might have been his sponsor in some way or other. But he's writing to Theophilus. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything that Jesus began to do and teach. So when we look at this book of Acts, it's actually part of a much larger work. Luke and Acts, in many ways, belong together. If you go back to the book of Luke, you'll find he... Uh, starts out in a similar vein with that particular book. He's writing to this man, wanting to make certain everything that has been told and is most assuredly believed by the people of God. And he wants to lay out that convincing sort of uh, proof, if you like, for this person that he is writing to. And so he says, many people have set out to write accounts 
about the events that have been fulfilled among us. And they used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. And having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write a careful account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. It's good to have people who are able to do that. And, uh, and so he is doing this for Theophilus. So we've got the first part in Luke's Gospel, and then we've got the second part here in the Acts of the Apostles. Some people believe that actually they may have been joined together at some particular point in time. But nevertheless, it is part of a larger work. And the interesting thing is that in the Gospels, he talks all about, about, all about the birth, the life, and the ministry of Jesus Christ, and then his, his death and his resurrection and his ascension. So suddenly Jesus is gone. Earth is a different place. Their story is now a different story. Jesus is no longer present to them. And yet he says in the book of Acts, he says, in my first book I told you, Theophilus, about everything that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up into heaven. Hmm, interesting. We tend to think that it's all about the church, uh, this particular book, because we see the church there with the presence of God throbbing with divine life. But in actual fact, this book is all about uh, God as Father, Son, and uh, Holy Spirit at work in the affairs of mankind. It's centered in God, and it's a story about God and about how he is working in humanity at this particular time. It's the continuing unfolding drama of God at work. I want to encourage you this morning, if you have not discovered that drama for yourself, you can know for yourself today that that you are part and parcel of this wonderful drama of God's love in human history. And that is what we have been celebrating this morning, that God has come to us in Jesus Christ. God has come to redeem. God has come so that we could be forgiven. God has come so that we could be cleansed. God has come so that we could be reconnected with him and know wonderful fellowship with him once again. Because God created us for himself. Known as Acts or the Acts of the Apostles, it is actually, we might say literally, the Acts of Jesus Christ. So Luke has been saying in the former book, I was writing all about Jesus, and now I want to tell you some more about Jesus. And we say, hang on a minute, hasn't he gone to heaven? Yes, he has. Where is he? He's in heaven. Whereabouts? He's on the throne in heaven. But he's saying, actually, I want to tell you some more because the story hasn't finished yet. In many ways, he's saying that Jesus is alive and well within and through his church. And there's some rather dramatic sort of stuff that comes out of all of this. So it's in reality the acts of Jesus Christ done in the power of the Holy Spirit through the people of God. An interesting thing about the book of Acts is it parallels, its beginning parallels, the book of Luke. So in the book of Luke you get the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary and Mary uh, conceiving and bringing forth a son whose name would be called Jesus for he would save his people from their sins. In the, the, the book of Acts, we suddenly find the Spirit coming upon the church. And as the Spirit comes upon the church, Christ is formed within the church. So the church actually becomes a demonstration of Christ to the world. 
Prior uh, to the resurrection, Jesus had become confined to a particular place and time, a particular area of the world. But by his ascension and the outpoured spirit, suddenly Jesus is manifest in the church and through the church to the world. So the church becomes Christ to the world. That's quite dramatic. But that is the reality because Paul will go on to, in his, his letters to unpack some of this and say that we are the body of Christ. We are Christ to the world. I just want you to take that and think on that just for a moment. So, it's about a new season. As you, you look at this particular book, it's about a new season and seasons, and they involve transition. It's about a move in the purposes of God. The people of God had known God. He had revealed Himself, and they had known Him through the temple, and through the tabernacle, and through the temple. Particular orders of service, particular ways of doing things, where God had taught His people that this God that they believed in was not like the gods of the nations. He was an entirely other God. He was an entirely holy God. And he couldn't be treated lightly. He couldn't be plied in different ways. He had to be related to on his own terms. And so we have all the, the ritual that we find in the Old Testament, all leading up and pointing towards Jesus Christ. And so we have the tabernacle, we have the temple as the place of God's dwelling where people realize that that is where God dwelt. And then as we come over into the New Testament, we suddenly get a massive transition from this uh, tabernacle temple to the fact that the, the building is now the people of God. This was so radical. And, and it blew their minds. And Jesus had already challenged their particular ideas about the temple when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it, raise it again referring to himself. And so in that sense, he was saying, I am the temple of God. I am the presence of God. I am the glory of God in the temple of God. Destroy it, and I will raise it again in three days. And so there's an awful lot of stuff that is going on in this particular book. It's a move away from the the forms that they have known and loved and cherished. Forms that they have known and loved and cherished for hundreds and and thousands of years. But as the fresh wind of the Spirit begins to blow, something is changing within the the way that they they go about things. There are new experiences. There are are tongues and wind and fire and, and the Spirit falling upon. There are buildings being shaken. There are visions and trance and revelation. There's prophecies and angelic intervention. There are signs and there are wonders. There's a whole lot of stuff that is just breaking out everywhere all around them. God present. Jesus present in and through his church. So Luke is very much saying, look, yes, I know Jesus has gone to heaven, but he's not finished. He has not finished. In actual fact, he is present to you by his spirit. And you are now his face and hands to the world. That's quite dramatic because they had God in a box and suddenly God comes and and he manifests himself and in a completely new way. So there were new ministries. Suddenly the Spirit was coming upon the men and the women. This was radical. It was not just the priests. It was was the, the, the whole body of Christ. 
There was a new community. They were learning to do life in a completely different way to what they had done before. As they learned to do this life with God thing together, as they learned what it was to be the people of God to the world in which they lived. A new community in new locations and new styles of meeting. Oh yes, they'd been used to the the tabernacle, the temple, they'd been used to the synagogue. And now suddenly God is present to them in an entirely different way and they each know the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And they can all be participators within this time together where there is divine life throbbing and flowing in a wonderful way. So their meetings take on an entirely new character. And it's not surprising that we find the apostle having to write to them and and tell them how to regulate and to order their meetings. The life of God is there, present within the congregation of the people of God. He's not in a box somewhere. He is there in their hearts and in them as a community of people. It's about how the people of God engage with and respond to the Holy Spirit in this new season. Jesus was no longer with them physically, but he was there by the Holy Spirit. And for them, it was a big learning curve. But how exciting. And I think we underestimate the, the drama of what is taking place here, the transition that is taking place here in the unfolding purposes of God. You've got to remember their history. You've got to think of where they were at. And it's not surprising, therefore, that there were the religious people who struggled with it and basically, basically said, God doesn't work like this. I'm wanting to keep him locked up in a box and doing God their way. And so they ran into trouble with the religious authorities and, and you'll find persecution arising as the story goes on. So that, but there was always a danger. It's always a danger within every one of us that we, we settle with what, where we're at. And so this was new, though this was new, yet nevertheless there was a tendency for them to settle with the new thing where they were placed. And that was in Jerusalem. But hadn't Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel to everyone who believes in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And yet we find even after these new experiences of the Spirit, there's a tendency for the church to be settling down in Jerusalem. Well, God has a way of stirring people up when they get settled down, doesn't he? He has a way of provocation, and we don't always like it, but he does it. Isn't that right? Uh, And we find, actually, it becomes as a result of Stephen getting up and and sharing something one day. And and there's a big question that has arisen arisen about the nature of God and what God was doing. And and Stephen just stands up and he he gives this um, amazing sermon, which you can find in the, in, the, in the early chapters of Acts there. But the result of this particular the message that he gives kind of like creates fury amongst the religious folk because they're wanting to put God into a box and he's saying, no, you can't put God into a box. Haven't you, don't you know the scriptures themselves? And this is what he says. He says, um, David found favor with God. So this is 7 verse 46. David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built it. However, he says, however, the Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands. 
As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that, asked the Lord? Could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? You stubborn people, you are heathen at heart and death to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? Uproar! Uproar! They wanted to keep God in a box and God says, I've never lived in a box. I'm bigger than that. And, and Stephen is saying, this is what this all is all about. Get it. But as a result of it, suddenly persecution arises. And so God uses this particular incident to, to shake up the people of God in Jerusalem. And suddenly they're being pushed this way and that way. They're leaving Jerusalem. They're going to Judea. They're going to Samaria. They're going up as far as Galilee. They're going to Phoenicia. They're going across to Cyprus and Antioch, preaching and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we begin to see how God begins to stir people up, to provoke them and to to move them on to new things and into new areas. God has a way of getting his purposes fulfilled, doesn't he? And so Antioch becomes the new center and ultimately it will move on to Rome. And, but we begin to see how God moves things around and as he shapes things and there is, a, there, is a, there is a fluidity to the purposes of God. The great problem for us as, as Christians and uh, when you look at church and you look at church history is there are times when God breaks in and moves and there are powerful encounters with God and moves of the Spirit and, and we celebrate those and we... And it's great, but the nature of things is we gradually settle down. We find our comfort zone, and we pitch our tent, and we say, Here, this is where we are. Until God breaks in again and stirs people up, as at the beginning of the, of the 1900s, with those who were hungry for God, tired of denominational organization and dryness, and hungry for God. God, this is about you. This is not about institutions. This is not about structures. This is about you and people seeking God all over again and getting hungry for Him and God breaking in by the Spirit and people suddenly discovering that the presence of God in the temple of the church again. A life that they couldn't contain and sometimes the denominations in those days couldn't contain it either. Those people had to go elsewhere and find fellowship for themselves. But again, those movements themselves can settle down and they can find their own norm and their own comfort and their own place of, if you like, just this is it, brothers and sisters, this is what it looks like. And then God breaks in again. And I think back into the 1960s, 1970s and and 80s when you had the the charismatic movement suddenly breaking out in the old style churches and and then you had the, the restoration movement breaking out People again saying, there must be more than this. Where is God? Where is God? I don't just want to do church. I don't want to just go through ritual every Sunday morning. I don't want religion. I want a relationship. I want the presence of God. I want the power of God. I want the fire of God. So people time and again. So God shakes up and he stirs people. It may be that you're here this morning and you've, you've known something of charismatic experience, but you've found your comfort zone and you've settled there. 
But I want to say to you, God wants to provoke you. He wants to provoke you. He wants to provoke each one of us. There's always a danger of becoming settlers. God wants us to keep being pioneers in the Holy Spirit, to keep keep pursuing Him and His purposes. As the story unfolds, you find that in Acts chapter 13, you get the commissioning of Barnabas and Saul to mission, which would bring about a real thrust of the gospel into the nation. So we've gone from Jerusalem, we've moved up to Antioch, and, and suddenly you find there a, a group of people, a church and, and leaders together who are just waiting on God and listening to the Holy Spirit. And out of that, they hear the voice of God setting apart Paul and Barnabas, a missionary team. And you've only got to go and read your Bibles and read that particular few chapters of, of, of the Acts of the Apostles and begin to see the, the adventurous spirit of Paul as he sets out on preaching the gospel to whomever he can preach it to. And the challenges, challenges that he faces along the way. And I, I look at that and I think, wow, he didn't have a sat-nav. He didn't have a mobile phone. He didn't have a car. He didn't have all the mod cons. And yet you look at some of those places that he went to. They, they must have tried him day and night as he went out on this adventure with God. But God was with him, and God blessed him, and God blessed those missionary journeys. Questions that would arise, and that's the nature of things. As things grow, questions arise. How do we? What should we? And all of that kind of thing. And it happened to the New Testament church. Questions about how do we manage the needs arising as a result of growth? Suddenly there was a whole group of widows, widows who were not being cared for as they should be. And how do we deal with that? And so they, again, they, they, they seek counsel with the Lord and with, with one another as to how to deal with that. How much of the Old Testament has been replaced? That was another question they came up against. And that was part of Stephen's radical answer because he basically says all of it, all of it has been replaced. That was the radical nature of this message of the good news of Jesus Christ. The, the Old Testament has been fulfilled in Jesus. Yes. Completely fulfilled. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. And it's wonderful. Questions like, who could be in the kingdom? So as the gospel moves further up country and, and those who are the Gentiles hear it and so on. And like, can, can they really be in the kingdom of God? And we, we get Peter and this, having this revelation where the sheet is let down and you've got those unclean animals and all the rest of it and it's let down. And God is saying to Peter, come on, Peter. He says, this good news is for everyone. I am no respecter of persons. And that's wonderful, isn't it? But you can see how God is changing the way people think, the way people act, the way people go about the ministry. And I know in my own experience, similar such things where God has challenged my thinking. I I thought I've understood, I thought I've got it. And there God just breaks in in a way and challenges that particular thinking that I have and, and suddenly blows it open in new ways. The gospel really is for all men and women. 
There are various characters there you, you could focus on, but our, our time has gone. You can look at Stephen, the first martyr. You can look at Philip, a deacon who is a mighty evangelist and moves in power. His, the fact that he was called to be a deacon didn't confine him. The Spirit of God was on him, and he went, and he preached the gospel. He, he did miracles in the name of Jesus. He healed the sick, etc. We think of the conversion of Saul, a man who would bridge two worlds, both the Jewish world and the, the Roman world, and assist in the furtherance of the gospel into the nations of the earth. We've already mentioned Peter. You think of Barnabas, who was a son, the son of encouragement. And so there's all sorts of people there. And you see, at the end of the day, God uses people. And he uses people with their own particular personalities. And that's what I love about the scripture. It's, it's, uh, God doesn't make us clones. You are special in his sight. And the work that he calls you to do is only the work that you can do. You know? And, and he just loves using the unique, unique giftedness and personalities of people. He is not bound by our weaknesses. He is not bound by our lack of understanding. God is so much bigger. Yes, they were imperfect. You see that in the fact that Paul and Barnabas, of all people, disagreed about John Mark. Had a big argument. Couldn't agree as to, to what to do with him. He'd been on mission with them before and gone back home and uh, and they, they, they're differing personalities and they, they disagree, but God is bigger than them and their personalities and their disagreement. And out of it, he has two mission teams out on the world. Yeah. Wonderful, isn't it? So trying to just draw all this together because our, our time is gone. What does, it, what does it mean for us? And I think a big one as I've studied it uh, just over this last two or three weeks is that this one, we are Christ to the world. If we could just grasp that, that we are Christ to the world. Yes, Jesus is in heaven, but he has poured out his spirit. And his spirit, as Paul says uh, over the Galatian church, he says he, he agonizes over them that Christ should be formed in them. And we are to be the face and the hands and the feet of Christ to the world. When you go out into the world this week, what will people see? How will they reflect on you? How can you be Christ to the world around you? At the school gate, in the office, wherever you work, among your neighbours? How can you be Christ to those people? An essential need of the Spirit's presence because when you look at this particular book, it's all about God present by His Holy Spirit. God dwelling among His people. God filling them and refilling them and engaging them in His purposes and them learning to listen to Him and to respond to Him and do His will. The essential need of the Holy Spirit's presence. As we've been on this journey with the Holy Spirit, can I ask you, have you crossed the line? Are you still somebody spectating from the outside? 
looking at what God's doing in someone else's life, I want to say to you, God wants to do it in yours. God loves you. And God wants to give you fully of his Holy Spirit. He wants to give you gifts that take you beyond the bounds of your human limitations. Are you hungry for more of him? Good. We need to be hungry for more of him as a church. Just imagine if everybody in this room was 100% hungry for more of God. Yes, I can be satisfied with God today, and I am, but I want more. I want more. I want more. And I trust that you do too, because when people get hungry for God, things happen. Isn't that right? And then again, thirdly, he doesn't always turn up like you expected. Don't put parameters on God and your experiences of God. Don't say it's got to happen to you like you saw it happen to somebody else. Allow God to come to you in his own way. Just to break in upon you in a new way, in his own beautiful, wonderful, sovereign way. And then again, flexibility, fluidity, flexibility, change. That's all part and parcel of being church. It's part and parcel of being life. It's doing life. It's being prepared for change. And unless we do, we die. One thing that you learn is the church has to be constantly changing. That can be threatening for us, can't it? And as elders and as a church, we are exploring what God is saying to us. You know, as we we see this building filling up and we see it frequently where people are standing there on Sunday mornings, we're saying, Lord, what do you want to do next? We did two services. We were obedient. We did two services. Then we we felt it right to close that down. And suddenly, when we've got one service, we've got more than we had in two services. That's exciting, isn't it? (laughs) I love the way God does things. You know, but there's, there's the need for flexibility. We're saying, God... What's it look like in the future? Whatever our particular vision was, whatever uh, um, structures that look like, we're, we're, we're putting it on the altar and we're saying, God, what do you want it to look like? What do you want Gateway to look like as we continue to explore this way forward together with you? And in, in, in that, the need to, to step out in faith and take risks and Mike Pilvacci did that, didn't he, on the video that you had last week. But that's the nature of the spirit-filled life. It will challenge us. It will cause us to step out of our norms and, and take faith, step out in faith and, and take risks. And in it, we'll need to learn how to engage the culture around us with the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe people moving into your area. Ashford's changed. It's a place where the nations are. And we need to learn by the Spirit how to, to relate the gospel to the various cultures that we find gathering around us. But I love the Acts. I love Acts because it holds out to me a God who is at work powerfully in his people. But it's not tidy, <laughs> it's messy. Yeah. But I'd rather have that than the sterility of a graveyard. Wouldn't you? Yeah. 